Welcome back listeners to another exciting episode of The Power of Perspective with Stephen Ritchie. I'm your host, Stephen, and today we're joined by an improv enthusiast with a wealth of experience and a knack for making us laugh. To start this episode, I'm just going to do a little brief history of, of improv and just a little bit of my experience to it, and then we will welcome Thomas on. So it all began in ancient times when performers used improvisation to entertain crowds. Fast forward to the 20th century, and we saw an emergence of modern improv with groups like the Compass Players and the iconic Second City. The 1970s introduced the world to Whose Landers Anyway, a show that brings improv comedy to the mainstream. Since then, improv has evolved, influencing everything from comedy clubs to corporate training. The core principles of spontaneity and collaboration continue to make us laugh and learn in equal measure. I was just hanging out with my sister the one day and she was like, hey, I've got this new hobby that I've started. I've joined a class and I'm like, oh, okay, what's there? And she's like, you know, improv comedy class. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't know that was on. But that sounds really fun. I've seen the Who's Line of the Show and, you know, I have a background in role playing games such as D&D &D and other. And I thought maybe this is a great way to develop my skills and my storytelling. And so I joined it. And, you know, it was like a hit from the start. A lot of skill, I think, in it to learn and develop. But, you know, as you push through and practice, it's a lot of fun, good laughs and teamwork. And I've been enjoying it so much. And one of the person who's quite big in the scene is uh, Thomas Dodds. He's, uh, yeah, one of the first faces I saw, actually, when I arrived at the class. He runs various improv things in Cape Town, you know, such as the drop-in class, a community initiative to get more people into the scene and try out the experience. And yeah, he's a professional performer. Thomas, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? Doing very good, Steve. Thank you for having me. Excited to be on the show today. Tell us about your, your experience and your know, background and who you are. So I'm uh, obviously, like yourself, South Africa based. And I suppose for improv specifically, I've always been interested, as I'm sure a lot of people have, just in performance and play and just making things up, as it were. When I was younger, like yourself, uh, as you mentioned, things like Whose Lines It Anyway used to be on uh, our local television here. And that was sort of an early window into the wider world of improv. So that's sort of like, um, you know, myself and some of my friends at the time, uh, sort of piqued our interest in that as a, a performance medium. Uh, when we were in high school in George, we used to practice a little bit of improv every now and then. Uh, you know, we did a lot of uh, theatre work as well in high school. It's quite complementary, the two, improv and, uh, and other forms of theatre and what have you. So we used to do a little bit of it there. But I really got involved once I started studying at Stellenbosch. At the time, they had an improv society there called uh, Adlib Improv. Uh, it was quite an established improv society that had been founded by some, I think originally it was some students from the Netherlands, I think, who'd come down. And yes. then there were some more like prominent people over the years that were keen on doing improv got involved there. I think when I joined, sort of initial like main improv coach and inspiration was a guy called Birgit Kirsten. He's a very prominent local improviser. Um, and uh, he was sort of the main guy there at the time and, you know, yep. I've learned a lot from him, not just around the mechanics of improv, but also the ethos for improv. 
uh, which is very much about like collaboration and accommodation and building stuff together with people and having a good time with other people, um, which is a very important aspect of improv. It's just the ethos of improv, not just the mechanics at the end of the day. So do you think Burkett had a, like, quite an impact on you during this time? Yeah, well, he was only there involved in the early years. I was at Adelaide for about six years. He himself had studied at Northwestern in the States at the university there and done a lot of improv in and around, you know, Illinois and Chicago at the time. So he'd learned a lot about improv, you know, Chicago being in many regards the Rome of the improv world. So he'd learned a lot. Yeah. I think it also influenced the type. Improv is a very broad spectrum and I don't believe in subscribing to any one doctrine or style of improv per se but a lot of what had come out of that scene you know it's my understanding and what Burkett had sort of taught was of the Chicago style of improv which is very sort of relationship and character driven improv as opposed to whatever else it may or may not be not that there's anything wrong with one way or the other um, so yeah no, the university improv scene is obviously a lot of fun you met a lot of very interesting people a lot of talented people that we performed with over the years is there a certain type of person that you found draw to this theatrical and improv activity and experience i think that what's great about improv is it appeals to quite a broad range of people particularly people who aren't necessarily keen on traditional theater or traditional performance mediums improv is sort of a different space for those types of people. So I would say a very broad spectrum of people. We'd have a mix of people that were actual, you know, theatre students at the time, but as well as all mathematicians and lawyers. And myself, I studied accounting, so I was the accounting guy. <laughs> as long as they don't uh, improvise the mathematics. No, well, I think there's some of that, Steve. But yeah, it definitely appeals to a broad range of people. And I think a lot of people are looking for that type of creative outlet and that type of community that appeals to all sorts of people, which is a great thing about improv, is that it's not necessarily just a particular kind of person. It's for all sorts of people, you know, both people who want to actually perform live improv and people who are just looking to get involved in improv just from a community aspect. Uh, I think one thing that the improv community you know, prides itself on is that it's a very inclusive community. You know, the, the nature of improv is about acceptance and collaboration. So we're very welcoming, we'd like to think. Hopefully that's been your experience, Steve. Well, you didn't scare me off the first time. I clearly came back. <laughs> so I'll take that as a There's good There's only sign. a couple night terrors in our cupboard. Well, I mean, we all get the night terrors. For My mom was like, you get back out there. <laughs> you get your ass back to improv. And I was like, fine, yeah. you know. No, it's, it's great fun. What sort of thing do they say at the start of class? What we like to do is sort of framing it, particularly for new people who aren't used to improv, is that it's it's a very welcoming and accepting space, especially in the context of an improv dropping class like you've been attending. It's that it's a place to experiment and it's a place to fail and it's a place where we encourage failure. Accepting and encouraging failure is a very big part of improv. You know, because you're always you're trying new things, most of the time we don't necessarily know what we're doing. Failure is like an inherent property of improv. One of the great things about it is it makes you more comfortable with failure at the end of the day and accepting other people's failures and learning to work with it and not having it take on a negative aspect where it's like we encourage it. It's okay for you to fail here. And we think that's a good sort of lesson to impart just in general, as it were, where this is a nice inclusive non-judgmental space to allow that sort of experimentation and like play at the end of the day. A lot of improv is just Playtime for adults, as it were. Yeah, well, we've moved so far away from play, you know, that we almost 
serious careers and you know so caught up with all the stresses and things that the idea of play you know just kind of having fun back and forth experimenting you know not fearing failure these are all like very important parts of childhoods but somewhere kind of just faded off and this is almost like an opportunity to kind of get back to some of that right? absolutely and there's there's a loads of value to it and i think a lot of us and i would you know for most people, there's a yearning for that sort of play and that, and it's not necessarily couched in a sort of an infantile sort of thing. It's like play is a very natural thing for people to engage in. But as you say, like the pressures of life and the expectations of society have pushed many people further and further away from those freedoms of being able to play and just experiment and have fun together. And that's a very much how we're trying to, you know, reawaken that in people and provide a space to say to people it's okay we want you to play we want you to be silly it's okay to be silly and be ridiculous and have fun and fail and as a result and i think you've seen amongst other people you know some of them brand new to classes that's hopefully their experience is that they've found something a place that allows them to do that yeah and is there any like kind of misconceptions around improv? You know, when I joined improv, like I'm quite passionate about it now, but going into it wasn't quite what I expected. Like sure, you know, all the core principles and ideas around it, but what is it that maybe people should kind of know about it? It was much more approachable. It wasn't so daunting, you know, there was a bit of startup class, you have this sort of almost teamwork type activities, and then, you know, you're just kind of having fun, there's scenes where you kind of get to put on cool little accents or play fun games. Why do you think the improv scene isn't as uh, advertised as the experience actually itself is? I think you speak to a, a, the heart of the problem is that it's very much an awareness and a misconception around what it is a lot of the time. Especially in our local scene here, it's not as prevalent as it would be in other parts of the world like North America or Europe or Australia, what have you. Um, so I think, as you say, most people don't necessarily know what it is. I think people hear the words improv and comedy and then it makes them think of you know, your higher barrier to entry things like traditional theatre productions or stand-up comedy or which all of them have a slightly higher barrier to entry whereas the barrier to entry for improv is much lower one could argue. It's much easier for just anybody to get involved and still you know be able to have fun and contribute in a meaningful way. Obviously you know the skill ceiling goes up like anything but it's I think the barrier to entry is a lot lower than people might expect and it's a it's a difficult thing to communicate right both for getting people to come to classes to try it out or workshops or even just trying to get people to performances so it's a never-ending battle Steve yeah. yeah it's like a hidden gem you know when I ran a lot of the board games community I had the same experience in a different way of people would often just rock up randomly you know just oh let's try that random you know thing posted on the internet or a friend you know told me i should join mm. or they're like oh, i had nothing else to do i guess i should do that and then they come and then they have no idea what it's really about people be like oh you know it's like something we did as kids is it still cool i don't know and you know we maybe we know like five games monopoly cluedo etc and then we bring them to them into a world and i think improv is also relatable to this you kind of bring them into the kind of like cool different almost a little bit more hidden than it should be kind of world and they're like wow there's like you know hundreds of games and you know there's such a diverse crowd of people it's easy to get into and there's so much there that you can create a passion out of it and you get to exercise people skills and you get to know the community and you can see what i'm doing here thomas there's yeah, a lot yeah. of a relatability this is almost a parallel to what's happening in the improv to a degree right 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it shares those aspects with other communities where it is, you know, very much once you're in, it makes a lot more sense than once you're out. But I think that's true of any community anywhere a lot of the time. Yeah, I think the bet from our side is that once we can get someone's foot in the door, the bet is that they'll enjoy themselves. You know, maybe there's the odd person that's maybe not for them, that's fine. But by and large, most people we can get to a class or get to a show and they get an actual feel because it's a very much, a, it's a difficult thing to explain that it is to experience, right? That's true of many things, obviously. But I think improv, because people's frame of reference, if they've never seen it before, they're sort of trying to create an idea of, okay, well, it's a mix of theater, but it's also comedy, but they're making stuff up. So without having seen it in action or done it in action, it is a tougher thing to explain if your frame of reference is limited. But yeah, yes. the bet is that people will enjoy themselves and yeah. go out of our way to try to facilitate that enjoyment. So let's further define improv and improv comedy. Uh, best describe? I don't know about best describe necessarily. <laughs> I'm expecting a Webster, you know, <laughs> throw it out there. Yeah. So uh, I think in its essence, improv, obviously improv is not just comedy. Improv is improvisation. It's improvised theater. Improv is still a form of theatre at the end of the day. We're doing scenes and games that is ultimately people performing at the end of the day. So it is very much a form of live theatre, but instead of it being based with, you know, we don't have a script, we don't have specific choreography, we don't have specific stage directions, it's all sort of um, created within the moment. So we sort of exercise different principles and ideas and mechanics to sort of be able to within a certain context, create something from nothing and the idea is to do it collaboratively. So it's not just me creating something by myself, creating whatever I decide, it's sort of trying to create something collaboratively. So it's essentially, you know, trying to build any given improv scene is like a new world that's being created at the end of the day. So if you're starting from nothing, sort of slowly, piece by piece, you know, I put one Lego brick down, you put the next Lego brick down, and the idea is to build something interesting and different every time by, you know, each of us bringing something different to the table and us, you know, because we everyone has a different dynamic with everybody else, that makes it exciting, right? So we are building something together, but different every time because it's every person has a different dynamic with somebody else. And uh, a show? What, what does that look like for someone who hasn't attended a show? Like, what does it feel to be running the show and to experience the show? Well, hopefully it's uh, fun uh, to watch the show, Steve. <laughs> I think, obviously, we do different formats, as it were, which is typical of any improv scene anywhere. You know, we do a mix of what is typically called short form, which is like sort of shorter games and scenes, which often have more specific mechanics or gimmicks attached to them, or something more elaborate, which is typically referred to as long form, which is uh, more elaborate formats and a bit more free form, um, often can be more narrative, much more directing the flow and the scenes from within the format than it is from without, as it would be in a short form game. And you've been to some of the shows yourself here locally, Steve. The idea is to sort of try to foster a very sort of an inclusive and upbeat atmosphere for the audience you know unlike some other types of performances the idea is to not take it overly seriously which is sort of true of improv at large we're obviously serious about doing good improv at the end of the day but in terms of an atmosphere and approach it's like nobody we're not taking it too seriously that doesn't mean we don't treat the production side of it very seriously which we 
obviously do. But from an atmosphere and inclusion, you know, trying to assure audiences, you know, no one's going to pick on you or anything. You no, know, you won't have to get up on stage if you don't want to. It's not social suicide to be in the front row. <laughs> no, no, like it would be, you know, in you know, some other comedy shows potentially. Yeah. So there is like, that's a common misconception about it. Obviously, a big part of improv is the audience's inclusion, right? If you're going to make stuff up, you've got to prove that you're making it up. Yeah. <laughs> a big part of that is to get suggestions is very typical of improv anywhere from the audience a lot of the time and you incorporate that into your scenes or use that to inspire your scenes or your games or create ideations from that and that's a nice way of including the audience into the performance which is a very integral part of it the audience is a participant in the show and that's a very important part of improv because ultimately if people are making stuff up on stage there's a high risk for it to go Poorly as well. And uh, you need the audience's buy-in that A, they know that you're making this up and that you ultimately want them to root for you, to support you. Because if you're, you're trying to make stuff up on stage and the audience is against you, you're going to have a very hard time. <laughs> you know, tomato is flung towards you. <laughs> no, get no, exactly. <laughs> All I have to do is smile and ask for the next suggestion. <laughs> so that getting that audience's buy-in is a very big part of it. And we, that's a lot of thought we put into how do we go about that. Right. So on this suggestions, what sort of suggestions do you look for and are there any limitations to receiving a suggestion? What does that process look like? In terms of limitations, an obvious one would be depending on what format you're doing. If we're doing a specific type of format, we may require a specific type of suggestion to sort of support that specific format. Otherwise, you know, if you're doing a specific scene, we might be going for something in particular. You know, if it might be a genre, we want a genre, not a shoe, for example. <laughs> Look, there's also like a thing in terms of a big thing with improv is that you should be open to exploration, open to new ideas and collaboration. But even within that space, there are limits, right? You don't want to put your performers and your audience to a certain degree in a position where they become overly uncomfortable with what's going on. Because you're often asking for open suggestions, you could get crazy stuff, you know, and inappropriate, wildly inappropriate stuff. Do you have any um, ones you can remember that were like way out there, crazy, just any memorable ones that came up over the years? Uh, there's been lots of them, Steve, but I mean, to list them is not necessarily. Yes. And that's yes. kind of against the point oh, of trying to make us. Because you as the audience might shout out something like, oh, you know, something crazy, and that's fine, you know, and the, and the the more experienced you are, there's more expectation that you can work with any suggestion. But with new people and people who have certain boundaries in place, which is healthy to do, um, you want to not put them in a position where they're forced to do something they don't want to do. Because that's against the spirit of what we're going for, right? People think that because improv is about yes and you must say yes to and do everything, which isn't necessarily the case. You always need to look after your performers and not put them in a position where they're you know, they feel too vulnerable and they feel upset with doing something. Because ultimately, if they're having a bad time, the audience is going to have a bad time too. So there are some limits in that regard. But at the same time, you, you want interesting suggestions for the audience to inspire your performers, right? You, we might get dentist as a suggestion for an occupation or something at every single show, which is fine. And, you know, good improvisers will work with whatever they get. But there is something great in sort of giving the improvisers a gift and giving them something interesting to work with, something unusual. So we also spend a lot of time on the back end, sort of like, well, how do we go about getting more compelling and interesting suggestions from the audience, especially on shows that rely heavily on audience suggestions. 
So that's a very important part of it. I mean, it's great to do a scene where you have to work with anything, but it's great, even better to do a scene where you're excited about the, the yeah. suggestion. You get genuine inspiration towards genuine inspiration. you. Yeah. yeah. And look, the inspiration is very much like nothing is necessarily ever taken literally per se. It can be, but it's often sort of like this makes you think of this, makes you think of that. But if your imagination is being stoked by something more compelling, that's always a lot more fun. The classic one I remember when I was doing a show was uh, you always get, even just attending the show it's like graveyard comes out like every time every time <laughs> yeah. and it's actually not a bad location but it's just people sort of latch on to typical I don't know maybe Obvious. ideas of what would happen in an improv show you know there yeah. are interesting commonalities that come out of a crowd yeah, that's true because it's like those are the easy things to get. It's either the very obvious stuff, which is nothing wrong with that, or it's the very like left field because they think, you know, that's unusual. But because people are always by default on the one extreme or the other of like very unusual or very plain, you tend to get that very often. Whereas you want that sort of mix in the middle of the stuff that's also unusual, but you know, it's not entirely wacky either. You're always looking for something new because, you know, improv is just like a never ending railway so <laughs> you know you want fresh you know you want fresh stuff happening on the tracks there steve yes exactly not graveyard scene cut you know 53 yeah yeah and look i've had some great scenes in a graveyard but you know i was wanting to do scenes in other places or in another context yeah and you know i found that in improv there's actually sort of different types of fields for instance you get you know musical improv you get improv scenes that as you said short form and long form which you know go from just quick crazy ideas to more involved developing maybe characters and personas and so on and complex interactions but and even the scenes that become more serious like you know yes. more emotionally involved i know one of the wonderful improvisers in cape town is uh, justine and she often says that you know, when you can't think of what do I say, what do I approach the scene, just think of the emotions involved, you know, mm. that you feel and the interaction, you know, who are you to this character? What do you think about the different types of improv? What you speak to there, Steve, is that again, improv isn't just about comedy per se and like wacky stuff. It's improvised theater at the end of the day. So more dramatic scenes and moments of sort of sincere emotion in that are also very much encouraged and that some of the best work comes out of those scenes as well. Um, so we also, you know, as we are trying to get people to flex their humor and develop, you know, more sophisticated approaches to that, we're also looking to have people get better at expressing sincere emotion and having more dramatic beats within improvisation because that's also a lot of great work, right? And if we are using improv as expressions of different things, then you want to see the full range of expression, not just the comedic side, we also want to see the more sincere side, as it were. I think what you speak of in terms of maybe the musical improv, again, that's like the different like genres and formats of improv, which is all great. You know, we've seen some traveling outfits that have done musical improv, and I think there's uh, one of the local troops have also been doing a musical format recently. And that's fantastic, right? And that's tricky to do as well. I mean, you've got to, not only you've got to make up scenes and stuff on the spot, you've got to like sing and make up lyrics. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> no, exactly. So that's tough as well, but exciting. And I think, you know, there's so much to format and because anything can be anything in improv. We're always sort of trying to find new stuff to do, push ourselves in new directions. I think we have a very genre heavy, 
show coming up next season, which we're very excited about. So yeah, the, the, the different types of improv, because you, you're interested in different things and then you find ways to explore that within an improv space. So, you yes. know, if you're interested in science fiction, then you can do a very science fiction heavy format, if you like, and you can explore those tropes and um, things within that context. And if it's, you know, broader short form thing and you like fast and snappy there's space for it as well so it's a very broad spectrum in terms of what you can so, put on format wise so in a show you know i found this interesting when i performed is that to the improvisers you're playing games like teamwork games or just interesting games where there's a challenge and stuff and to the audience you're putting on a show and so, you know, we're kind of having fun. It's like we're almost playing a sport or an activity. And to them, they're watching this wonderful show or movie-esque sort of experience. Mm. And so what sort of games um, and challenges are thrown into a show? And maybe even why are they games and challenges thrown at the improvisers? Wouldn't it be easier just to do a scene? So look, we, we do do regular scenes as well. So again, it depends on the chosen format for the show. Games where you have like challenges or specific tricky mechanics is just to watch the improvisers jump through hoops because that's fun to do, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, and uh, another thing in terms of those short form games is sometimes by having a specific mechanic, because you're, you're more focused on that on the front end, it kind of frees up the rest of your thought process. You don't fuss about it as much and it tends to flow a bit easier a lot of the time. So yeah. a common thing that happens to a lot of performers is that you sort of you say you get like um, stuck in your head, as it were. You're kind of overthinking and second guessing yourself, and you're not sure what to do. So oftentimes, especially for newer improvisers, you'll sometimes focus on these specific things to allow like the rest of the mechanics and principles to operate in the background, and they sort of begin to internalize it more. So it allows them to feed up. You're not so focused on like your character's perspective because you're trying to only speak like five words at a time but yeah obviously the idea is to as people upskill or whenever is we also do absolutely just do regular scenes because that's the sort of the the improv i guess the platonic improv idea was just a plain scene and you do something compelling yes. with it which happens a lot of the time yes. right could yeah. you give a few examples of games in terms of just like what are you doing in the games so in a show you'll have like cool there's five games that were played one is you know maybe alphabet where every uh, line you say between you and a partner would be the next layer of the alphabet so you know i would be like a great day to be outside and thomas would be because the sun is shining yeah you know etc and yes. so yeah that's an example of game so what, what other sort of maybe prominent or just kind of give a bit of diversity of what sort of games get played you get games where you sort of need to continuously make new offers. So a game we play quite a lot is New Choice or Change the Offer, it's called in some uh, circles. So that's sort of two people would have a scene and then the, the host or the MC at any one point after a certain line is spoken in the scene might ask for a new choice and then the improviser would need to give a different line based on what they'd given yeah. previously. Such as... Lois, I'm Superman and I've came to save you. And I say new choice. I've come to confess my love to you. And if I say new choice again? I've come to murder you and dispose of the body, I guess. Good. <laughs> I so You get the idea. Yeah, so just from that iteration, what you're trying to get there is people to just flex their creativity. Like, what else can you come up with? But still within the confines of that. So you're giving new choices that Superman was 
you know, voicing to Lois. So that sort of teaches you to sort of come up with like, it's like lateral thinking, sort of coming up with new stuff within those constraints, or you can come up with something completely different, which is sort of like an exercise of differentiating your offer. It could be instead of Lois, you're thinking it was like, oh no, uh, I've lost my powers or what have you, or it could be something completely different. So you're trying to flex those different ways of approaching the creativity. The idea for the scene partner in that regard is to also learn to um, justify and accept those different offers. You were offered this now you've been offered something completely different the idea is to be adaptable acknowledge and accept what's the new offer and then sort of incorporate and work with that going forward so that's a very much like a, a strong example of sort of creating and like a push and pull of accepting and adapting which is very key to yes. improv at the end of the day so you know improv as you said is a lot of teamwork and collaboration but it's also a lot of kind of principles and you know for instance the yes and principle where someone offers you an offer and, you know, instead of bouncing it away and being like, you know, uh, no, th then how do they build upon that? An example, maybe. Yeah, so as you say, a big part of improv is sort of making an offer to someone and then sort of accepting that offer and working yes. with it and building on it. So I could say to you, Steve, this is a shoe. Then like your response should be... No, thank you. I don't want to choose, I guess. You know, that'd be like a block, but a better answer would be like, uh, yes, it is a shoe. And I've been looking for that all day. And so you're right. I would say that the first one, it's not really a block. The important aspect there is you acknowledge that I've offered you a shoe. You haven't said, yes. oh, that's a fish. You know, like, <laughs> you've acknowledged it's a shoe, so that's good. It could yes. be you say you don't want the shoe because your character decides he doesn't want the shoe. So it's fine for you as a character to say no, have a block. If your character has reasons for doing so, it's within their perspective. But as a performer, you're still accepting. You've accepted what I've offered you. I've offered you a shoe. You're deciding how you're going to react about it. So that was still fine. It doesn't always need to be like hyper acceptance in terms of, yes, it's a shoe. Let's put it on. That's yes. fine too. Like sometimes obviously it's great. But, you know, as long as you're acknowledging what I've offered you, what you decide to do with it is your prerogative at the end of the day. And then I must subsequently build on how you've reacted to that. So what are useful principles to acknowledge in a scene when you're like what would you say some nice ones to have in your tool set just as yeah, a, so, a guide of sorts in a scene yeah so obviously accepting offers that have been given to you is always good and then obviously you want to build on that offer is very important if all you're ever doing is accepting then it's only one person trying to you know row the boat you need two people to row the boat in the improv scene obviously very key in order to be able to receive offers is like listening. Obviously that's talked about a lot in improv is that you have to be very much an active listener. If you don't know what it is your partner, your scene partner is saying, it makes it that much harder to sort of internalize what they've offered to you and then build on it in a meaningful way and decide how that affects you and how you feel about it. Um, so listening is very key, obviously. Would also say, yeah, we, we talk about like collaboration, but what does that mean at the end of the day? It's sort of like, it's about giving your scene partners um, space to bring their ideas as well, right? Obviously people have different personalities that can be more or less pushy in a scene, you know, maybe they're leading more, maybe they're following more. So it's also about sort of recognizing what you do most typically in that regard. It's sort of like, am I contributing enough? Am I supporting enough? Am I allowing space for other people's ideas? So that sort of push and pull in terms of like the collaboration is a very important aspect as well. Because it's not just a one-way street, right? So that's very yes. important. I find what's nice with improv is that 
There's a lot of moving pieces, but also a lot of things to think about. There's the teamwork, which is fun collaboration. There's the challenge. There's the storylines progressing. You know, there's what is everyone doing? There's, you know, it's all this active listening. And then you have a character to think about. How would they act in this moment? Mm. And then, you know, also maybe what's happening in the world. And so that is like quite a fun, like, collection of things going on to challenge the brain and mm -hmm. like it's like a muscle you you build up right it's absolutely you train yeah. it in a specific way you're running the show what are some things you're trying to do the host the, 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 host, MC the director as it were your chief responsibility there is to ensure that everything is running as it should right you need to i mean there's back-end stuff steve like you know the getting the venue right etc and there's like yes. other mechanics but from a performer responsibilities you want to i'd say your main responsibility is making sure your performers are in the correct headspace so in so far as because that's ultimately like something that affects people performance the most is being in the correct headspace and having the correct atmosphere for the performance irrespective of where you are in terms of your your improv experience or what have you it could be like a hardened veteran or a new performer or what have you being in the right mindset is always very important and i think it's a it's a mix of things you know obviously people are individuals so some people's processes are different for that we sort of have certain routines it differs depending on who's directing in terms of what they think is best for getting people ready to perform you know some people need nothing and they can just walk on stage which is great other people have a process um, it's about trying to strike that balance of accommodating people and ensuring you know are we all present or we're all ready to collaborate you know we're all having a good time because yes. if you're not having a good time that's like so many more barriers to entry to perform right yes that's all court mandated yeah, court mandated because <laughs> <laughs> that's not where we want someone to be you know we yes. all here have a good time if you're in a better headspace you're gonna have a better performance i noticed um chatting to various people running shows that two sort of principles that came up was when there's a laugh, it's maybe a good time to end a scene because, you know, it's on a high, we don't need more detail, you know, mm -hmm. it's a good time. You know, people have a very positive outlook of that scene and maybe it's a good transition. Or if they're struggling, they don't know what to say, it's a good time to be like, mm -hmm. you know, cool. So there's an aspect of kind of helping them out or in the case of maybe, you know, I don't know, new choice type mechanic, it's like, okay, that, that idea is maybe problematic or, you know, you're clearly a bit stuck. Yeah, let's offer you something new, redirect, you know, give you a bit of leeway. Yeah, 100%. So like the, when you're actively running the show, it's your responsibility to manage the pacing and the feel of the show at the end yes. of the day. So all of what you describe ties into managing like the pacing and feel of the show. You know, how long should scenes run? Are we ending on good or better moments? Has the scene had enough beats? Does this scene need more help? Are these performers, have they reached a natural conclusion? Do they need a bit of a push? So yeah, yes. that's very much like you need to take an active role in the, you know, managing the feel and the pacing of the thing. When you do larger formats where you don't have a specific director or host, that responsibility is still there, but then falls to the performers at large. So you need to sort of learn to manage the, the show and the pacing. Uh, and the variety of the show from within. So that's why oftentimes, you know, there's a bit more that goes into your long form formats or other formats that necessitate directing from within the scenes um, because it's everyone's responsibility. Yes. What does a very successful scene look like to you? Like what went right there? You know, a successful scene is such a subjective thing, but I would say on average, it's where 
the performers are paying attention to each other, they're accepting what each other is offering, um, they're building on what the other is offering, uh, they're being respectful of their scene partner, they're allowing them to have space to assert themselves in the scene more or less, you know, given the context. In terms of what happens in scenes, there is no right or wrong what would yeah. constitute thing. But I think if the performers are, you know, they're present, they're building on each other's ideas, generally you're going to get better work as opposed to worse work, right? Yes. Um, improv is obviously more of an art than it is a science, right? So there isn't, you know, obviously people have differing views on it. I'm of the opinion that, you know, there's space for anything and everything to happen in the improv scene. But scenes that work better are where you're, you're actively trying to build something constructively with your scene partner is sort of the crux of it. Where people are trying to go their own way, they're trying to force their own agenda on the scene, that's generally where things start to break down. You can still have entertaining scenes, but I guarantee you those the other scene partners aren't having as much good of a time if that is the case, right? Yes, we all want yeah. to have fun and thrive and support each other. No, absolutely. And, you know, there's also the aspect of go with it in improv. So, you know, yes. if you come with this forceful idea or preconceived what should happen in the scene and then they're like oh I misinterpreted that or they do something uh, totally different well you know to the audience it's it's confusing if these people have a back and forth of whose idea is right so sometimes there's clearly something else is happening than I expected and so let's go with that and so if you have two preconceived idea and forceful thing of like oh I've pre-planned this idea you know mm. for like 15 seconds and then just being like trying to force it uh, you know, that can be a bit of a challenge and confusion to the audience. I noticed another sort of principle or idea in improv that often comes out in class is, you know, you don't actually necessarily have to try to be funny. It's almost you just do the principles and the teamwork and just, you know, make a scene, say something, you know, just kind of build on the scene, support the other. And almost the games and just the nature of the chaos and the, you know, all the things going on is that mistakes will happen naturally. I think Tamworth says this a lot. The mistakes happen and the games may almost encourage it. And so, you know, people will find that quite entertaining. And as you said, the improvisers jumping through hoops is also quite uh, entertaining. It's yeah, because it's, it's entertaining <laughs> to watch someone be serious yes. about make-believe at the end of yeah. the day, right? Um, yeah, and just to go back to where you say that people trying to force their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Look, so because you're creating, you do need to bring ideas to the table. Yes. But it's very much a you don't want to derail something or force your agenda when something else is obviously happening. So obviously, whatever idea has been solidified in the scene, I might have an idea of what's going to happen in the scene, but you've, you know, you've made it very clear something else is happening. As you said, I must go with the flow support your idea but you don't always want to be overly forceful as you said because then I'm just always imposing my agenda on you and that's not in the spirit of like collaboration um, absolutely and part of the kind of fun is the seeing okay well this bit of a little bit of shit show a little bit of um, chaos is happening let's see where it goes let's build upon that let's this crazy idea you know has been introduced something wild that happens that you have to build up upon like yeah, 100%. And yes. it's entertaining to see people try to treat that crazy idea seriously. Like, yes. the, the idea of itself is crazy, but those people are in that world, that's their reality. So they must play yes. that in a sincere <laughs> way, you know. And as you say, a lot of the comedy is born naturally out of that, of people just yes. sort of, you're treating the reality of the scene with sincerity, and the sort of the comedy gets born out of that. So, and a lot of, you know, the, the mistakes happen, and a lot of the comedy comes from that. It doesn't always necessarily come from that, because I think that sort of, undervalues 
people's agency and creativity. A lot of people, you know, improv is also about choices at the end of the day. Yes. People make more or less compelling choices and a lot of the comedy comes from that too. So I would say it's a mix of both like natural comedy from the sincerity, from mistakes being made, as well as like the choices people make as well. The premise is you're on an alien spaceship and then this guy thinks he's a mine shaft. He's like, well, I'm a miner on this spaceship. Well, you gotta figure out how does this miner end up on the spaceship, you know, what's his role, you know, what, what does he do? And, you know, so that's part of the fun, trading reality in the bazaar. And then you somehow, you know, the miner and the admiral form this relationship and now they're in love and, you know, trying to progress it in a sensible way where you can like, you know, those were real emotions. There was this guy who was a bit lost and confused of how he had gotten the spaceship, the captain trying to, you know, organize his ship and make him feel comfortable. And then there was like, you know, real bonding. And then maybe some silly things happened. Like the guy was like, oh, I pushed that button. Oh, shit, that's not good. We've detached the engines. Ooh. So you can make that genuine feeling in a bizarre and unexpected you know, reality and premise, and that's quite fun. Yes, I, I think you, that's a good way of putting it, Steve, is that you might have these ridiculous situations, but within them, there is obviously um, scope for genuine connection and sincerity, and that's also entertaining and compelling to see. There might be two, whatever, space pirates and their ship is falling apart, but they have an interaction where they actually, you know, they've been each other's best friends forever and you know maybe the ship's going down and they have a very heartfelt exchange about it and that's totally valid and compelling and funny there's space for like those ridiculous things to happen as well but i think that's what a lot of the appeal about it comes from is that you creating these worlds but you're finding a way to make them compelling you're on the fly right which is which can be very tricky and finding that you know sincerity there is more you know space for like you're more irony and that based humor within the context of the scenes. But very oftentimes approaching it from a, an angle of sincerity, real emotions and connections makes the, both your scene partners, yourself and the audience buy into it that much more, right? Yes. Yeah. So, what kind of characters do you like to play? Is there a preference or...? I think quite a wide range of stuff. I mean, it's different for everybody. Generally, you kind of have a split of doing like more specific character work, which is, you know, your not necessarily wacky, that like you can be wacky characters as well, or just playing something other than yourself, which is obviously a lot of um, you know, improv and performance in general. Or what you know is sometimes referred to as you play more close to type, where it's sort of, we're basically playing alternate reality versions of ourselves within that context, right? And those are both good. You want to be able to play both those. You, you're still at the end of the day playing a character at the end of the day. You want to be a versatile improviser. Being able to play characters that are much further removed from your actual experience is good because that's fun and exciting and different. And to try to think your way through, well, what, how would this character actually be in this world? What is their point of view or what have you? As well as when you, you scale that back a bit and you're playing closer to how you actually are, that frees up that sort of, um, that mental processing to just sort of add different things into the scenes. Um, you can play a scene in a different way and maybe you play like a more ordinary plain scene, which is also compelling at the end of the day. Yes, um, just one of those, you know, a day in the life. A day uh, in the life, two guys at a bus stop, you know, and they're having a conversation, you know, and that's, yes, like, those and can be equally compelling as to... What people at the bus stop converse about, right? Exactly, like, like, what are they talking about, Steve? <laughs> um, and then generally you get great results, you know, even within that, what might seem like a very mundane or ordinary context, there's still, those are like evergreen scenarios in improv like there's always something compelling to find within those and I think as you go on in improv you increasingly look for ways to 
think about those ordinary scenes and characters in more interesting ways. It's like, okay, well, I've seen a father and a son interaction like this. How else can it be? Or how else can it be? And that sort of lateral thinking within that space is very useful at the end of the day. Because a lot of improv is versatility at the end of the day. If you're constantly making stuff up, you want to be able to flex that in how far you can take it. Yes, exactly. And what sort of um, reasons do people come to these improv, you know, classes or get into the scene? You know, what, what sort of things do you often find that bring people in, like their reasons for joining? It's quite a wide mix. So the obvious ones would be people who are looking to perform, right? They've seen improv or they've seen theatre and that appeals to them and they're looking for it. But I think a lot of people are coming in for like all the various other benefits that we feel improv imparts on people, right? So it's very good for your social interaction, it's good for your public speaking, it's good for active listening, it's good for collaboration. Um, so I think, you know, we'll often chat to people who've come to the classes and they say, okay, well, you know, I'm not interested in being on stage, but like I'm looking to become a better public speaker or I'm looking to get over my social anxiety or I'm looking to just meet interesting and diverse people in like a very fun and supportive context. You know, that, that's yes. a very undervalued aspect of it, I think, is that it's nice to be able to come to a space where people are welcoming you into the community, right? A lot of, I mean, I can't speak for most communities, you know, in terms of like you know, a hobby space, I guess. But that's always more preferable is if you, you know, a lot of them are, can be like a walled garden, right? And then it's hard to break into, not all of them, obviously. But that's a very appealing aspect is like the sort of social, meet new people, make new friends type of aspect, in addition to all of the sort of the, all the additional skill benefits that come from improv, as it were. I don't know if that's been your experience, Steve? Yeah, I'm, I've found, no, exactly, it's very beneficial. You can get you out of shell a bit, you know, you kind of have to put yourself in maybe a position that's, you know, not the usual, you have to challenge yourself, be like, mm. oh, okay, I don't quite know what to do in this moment in the scene, but hey, let's try something, you know, and maybe they, you know, they'll probably support me. And exactly, it brings out confidence because, you know, you will be moments of triumph and, you know, if you fail, no one's worried, no one's going to give you a hard time and, you know, you're going to succeed and you're going to do cool things and, you know, impress yourself. And these are all the little victories and feelings of progression and the group of people, you know, uh, mm. feedback, mm. you know, oh, I did something funny or clever or whatever. And then everyone's like, oh, you know, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, you know, you did such a great thing. That was really like stuck with me or memorable or really unique to yourself and you know everyone brings something a bit different to the table and it's really cool you know sometimes we have these post-class circle of love yeah and how cool is that that's just say nice things about the other people you know like a realistic think okay what did you enjoy about you know what the people did during the class what scenes did you like you know what aspects of that person being here or you know their way they've interacted and done the scenes and it just gives you the sense of support and enabling of, of self-growth and I mean with public speaking sure you know as I said with my role-playing background I wanted to maybe further develop my storytelling and mm. thinking on the spot and you know giving speeches and all of this is speaking in a clear concise and effective way and so, yeah, you know, you get a lot of practice at that in a way that's not intimidating. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, a place where you, you're encouraged to take risks, where the stakes for 
failure are so low, right? And that yes. the failure is encouraged. So you, you push to have that risk-taking mentality, like a measured risk-taking, but where it's there's the structures are in place that, you know, the if you fail, that's fine. Everyone's happy that you failed. You yes. know, no one's going to judge you for having failed in that context. That's already like positive affirmation of training of those sorts of principles. Yeah, do you think some of this can translate to above the mentioned, you know, life skills and you know, self-growth sort of aspects? Oh, absolutely. What sort um, of things would come out? I think it's relevant in a lot of those contexts. Um, you know, all of those things we mentioned are aspirational aspects for people's growth in that regard. And I think it, it, it does go further. I mean, there are people who do more, you know, within the social sciences, applied improvisation, which is sort of improvisation as a tool or methodology for helping people in like more, uh, in a more like formalized way, I guess. I don't know how to put it necessarily, but it has a lot of very like, both on like training soft skills perspectives, but as well as like therapeutic type, because improv is very therapeutic by its nature as well. There's even a branch of, of improv therapy where they take people who are struggling with mental health challenges of varying mm. types and degrees and they expose them to this experience and you know it can be very helpful soothing and just a easy way to get comfortable in their environment and you know just deal with these things in a non-intrusive non-scary way like yeah you can teach all sorts of life skills i'm sure there are people who are doing more serious like improv as therapy type of avenues uh, which is great because i think it because of its ease of access and because it's so non-invasive i think there's probably a lot of good results to be gotten through therapy for various aspects but improv yes. is like your you know minimum force required to help people in so many contexts you know? yes so on this kind of like self-growth or improving in various aspects are there any sort of antidotes or you know personal stories about how it's you know positively impacted you or the people around you? Obviously, improv again is not just about comedy, but like humor is such a very powerful thing, right? For both connecting people and helping people relate to each other. And I've always felt that the humor with is such a great like furnace for like helping people grow their humor and help the humor become more sophisticated and stronger. And as a result of that, the, it's, it's very much been useful both for myself and I'm sure for many people as well to sort of relate to each other and, you know, forge friendships and help improve each other's outlooks. And humor is such a great thing for doing that, right? Like, I think like so many of the, you know, the friends I've made over the years, whether through improv or not has like one of the core tenets of it has been like a shared humor or an appreciation. You know, we yes. might have different ideas of what it may be, but it's such a good sort of like door opening to like connecting with someone is through like yes. humor and that. Yeah, it's amazing how important this humor, we don't even understand that much about it as much relative to what we could, that it's so important for connecting. You know, a lot of people will, you know, Big friends because of humor as well enjoy company largely because of the humor and jokes that are being thrown around maybe even pick their you know life partners partly because the shared humor you know it's nothing maybe more unenjoyable than when you throw out a joke and you're like yeah that was a good one and then it's like a 
like crickets <laughs> you're like hmm yeah, <laughs> you like, know as opposed to like you know oh, you throw out a humor of you know whether your group likes dad jokes or whatever and you know everyone's like oh that was a good one man and they throw one back and you're all on board with the same experience yeah, so it's, yeah and in an improv context improv is like sort of a platform to allow you to explore your humor in a way that you might be difficult to do otherwise, right? So you get to explore and grow aspects of it with other people in a space where everyone, you know, wants to learn your humor, wants to laugh with you at the end of the day. And I think having a space, um, you know, a lot of people would do it just, you know, themselves and that's great. But I think having that space to meet new people under those circumstances and all, you know, get along. Doesn't mean they all necessarily become best of friends necessarily, but it's such a strong bonding experience is to just be able to be silly and laugh together that it's sort of yes. you know just having that space for people that might not otherwise exist is very important i think yes know. so tell us about improv community you know at a broader and even more micro level can't speak at a broader level you know globally yeah, yeah, but your thoughts on, you know what, what's out there it's a scene there's there's people yeah, gathering for it like what, what's, what are your thoughts on it as I, a well i think it's i think it's obviously Good. I mean, that goes without saying. I'd like to think that it certainly, obviously, there's been strongholds of improv like the United States and the UK and other parts of Europe and, you know, Australia and what have you. You know, we've had a few international festivals that were hosted here and we had a lot of international improvisers come down to Cape Town here in South Africa. And that's sort of a window into the larger improv world, as it were. And we'll obviously have people who've been abroad and done improv as well. I think it's a growing thing globally, especially in places where it's been less prevalent. And I think that's a big part of what we're trying to both do here locally, say in South Africa, as well as parts of the rest of the world where it isn't as prevalent. You know, trying to you know, export improv as this performance medium and all the benefits that encompass it. So I'd like to think that it's growing, that people are finding new things to do within the space and people are pushing each other to, you know, hone their craft, as it were. Because um, that's also ultimately important to grow in a performance medium, you know, to grow your craft is to be around other talented people that push you and challenge you. Um, so if you're in a space where there's loads of other people to do so, that's great. But if you're in places, say we're in South Africa, there's a much smaller pool of people. Obviously, the people here are very talented and, you know, some very wonderful improvisers. But because the scene is so much smaller, it comes with those challenges, you know, it's like, you know, trying to just raise general awareness in the, you know, the basic population of, okay, well, what is improv? You know, why would you want to do improv? And, you know, and again, because the manpower is so limited, you know, we can only do so much, you know, classes and workshops and shows and definitely getting there, growing the awareness, growing the appetite for improv as well. And the idea is to sort of slowly, you know, if you think long term, it's to have much more people in the broader performing teaching space, but then to slowly sort of push improv down the ladder as it were. So much like you know, improv has a lot in common with things like team sport at the end of the day. So to have improv like people doing improv at school already, like they're doing, you know, yes. uh, abroad in many places. So, you know, because there's so many benefits to it. And then, you know, if you have it further down the ladder, by the time you have someone who leaves high school, they're already like a competent improviser or as they would be a competent soccer player or something like that. It's exciting, even though, say, in Cape Town, for example, it's a relatively small scene it's probably still the biggest locally i would think uh, and you know i think we put out a lot of good improv despite that and you know we're always looking to find avenues to grow the scene as it were and bring new people on board yes so might be a good time to give people a maybe just a little bit of a taste of what sort of an improv sort of game feels 
like we actually had a pre-chat where you know it's not a easy medium to sell through an audio format but no, let's have a bash at one. Give it a try, then, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Screw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, what, what could go wrong? We can't preach about failure and not, like, risk. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I could always edit it out. Yeah, so. you could always edit it out, Steve. <laughs> With, like, a different guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded a scene at a show and, like, yeah, spliced yeah. it in. Um, okay, so let's do, as we discussed, Steve, let's do that short form game we've been playing uh, with one of our local troops lately that we've had quite a lot of fun with called Letter of Complaint. Um, so basically, you and I are going to write a letter. We're one person, but we're writing a letter of complaint, uh, but we're going to do it one word at a time. So what is something you enjoy, Steve? And then we're going to write a letter of complaint about that. <laughs> uh, ooh, what, what do I enjoy? I mean, board, uh, game, board games. Or... Yeah, let's write a letter sure. of complaint to our local uh, board game organizer. So they yes. organized a tournament recently, and we want to complain about something related to that. So oh, this feels so real. Man. Yeah, this feels real, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to do that in one word at a time. So sort yes. of think about the structure of a letter, and we'll try and go through that. It doesn't need to be overly long. So, dear Mr. Organizer, I would expect you to have taken better care of the tournament players every time you host these tournaments i experience horrible things and one time there was this unfortunate occurrence that happened to edward jackson <laughs> i thought you're gonna go to his answer <laughs> edward jackson and he slipped and fell on a figurine that pierced his cheek and subsequently he lost all his blushing abilities <laughs> and his sense of humor i think you should have protected him more in placing your figurines safely in the locked cabinet under the ground <laughs> please adhere to the conditions as listed on this tournament criticism website <laughs> sincerely your least favorite player and dungeon master <laughs> and <laughs> Parking attendant <laughs> Greg. That's an example of a, a game. You know, it's a very simple format we went for, just for, you know, presentation purposes in this format. So, I mean, Tomek, how would you sort of analyze and sort of critique, you know, this sort of game? So... What, you know, what we, we just experienced now. Sure. So I think we, we did well enough in terms of... Um, giving each other space and setting each other up because obviously it's one word you're just sort of taking one step forward waiting for the other person to take a step so I think we did good I think we did uh, paint a bit of a picture of like what we felt about that I think we could have leaned into a bit more about our like relationship and feeling was towards this organizer because obviously we've been in the context of that scene we've been to a lot of these tournaments and we're disgruntled yes. about how they're being run so I think we could have got a little bit more specific maybe around like our relationship with in 
his context because that yes. would have been interesting and specific. Um, but otherwise, not not too bad, Steve. Mm. Not, not too shabby. Yeah. Not too shabby. No. So yeah, we gave it a go. This was uh, attempt number forty-two. Yeah, yeah. It took no, with, with, <laughs> with you know with the power of editing. Yeah, I guess so, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas got a little sad when I locked him in his apartment for like two days to get, yeah. to get the right scene. It's not man. what I signed on for, Steve. <laughs> Should have seen the terms and conditions, man. Oh, ridiculous. <laughs> no, no, we're just, just messing. For a first attempt, yeah, good job, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, it was fun, comfortable, a little challenging, and, you know, it was hard to know where to expect it to flow and the journey and so on. Good yeah. format. I like that game. I haven't yeah. played it before, but I did quite enjoy it. And so this could be, you know, uh, considered like a scene, even if it was a simple short thing, mm. and, you know, it's various types of scene. And so what does the process of creating a scene look like? Coming up with ideas, building a narrative on the spot. Yeah, so you, it's sort of, I suppose in its simplest form, you're looking to bring ideas to the table, um, you know, an offer of sorts. Um, if we're doing it off the back of, let's say, a, an audience suggestion or what have you, it'll be sort of, okay, we've received the suggestion from the audience. What does that inspire us to think of? Or yes. obviously you get different suggestions and in different contexts, you know, it could be a relationship or a location of some kind, or it could be something more abstract, you know, it could be a feeling, an emotion, it could be a specific scenario, it could be anything really. We're doing it off the back of that. It'll be, okay, well, what does that inspire in you and your scene partner? And again, it could be a case of, well, I might have an idea based on that suggestion, you might have a different idea. And as we discussed earlier, whoever solidifies that idea first, that becomes the dominant idea and that's what we play with. Or it's okay to not have an idea necessarily. You know, we can find the, the connection later on in the scene. We can just start the scene in some other way and we can sort of find a way to incorporate that thematically or what have you as the scene goes. So there's really, you know, different ways to approach it yeah. in that regard. There's no right or wrong way to go about an improv scene. I think it's very important. A lot of people yeah. want to be told there's a checklist of things you should do in order to do an improv scene. And in some regards that's true and in others I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I think it's more about developing a, you know, a, a sort of a suite of options that's available to yourself so that in any given context you have something that you can work with as opposed to having like yes. a rigid framework which is very limiting. Improv should be about freedom, it shouldn't be about limitations. Limitations are useful in certain improv contexts for forms or specific games, because that's just what we're going to focus on. But if we're talking about improv scenes in general, it's more about, you know, these are the different options available to you. You want to get better at exercising those options. Yes. And um, as opposed to sort of this is, there's only one right way to go about it, which yes. I don't believe to be true. So to build a compelling narrative. Yes. How do you do that? So I think a compelling narrative, a narrative can be many things as well, right? It, it can be a traditional like plot-based thing or traditional character-driven thing. So if we think about narrative as sort of like the journey a scene might take. You know, in improv, part of it is the things you're saying. And so, you know, clever or witty or well-constructed narrative is um, can be quite valuable or quite a pleasant experience to hear from the other side. Building a narrative is okay. quite a process. And so building the narrative firstly for a scene, what do you think about when you're building that narrative? 
if you're starting from scratch from an improv scene, you want to, you're creating a new world, as it were, essentially. So you're trying to fill in that world, as it were, um, with your scene partner. Think about it as really being character-driven. Sort of a what is my character's point of view in this world? You know, I might be a fisherman working on a trawler somewhere. We're both trying to create the world of that fishing boat trawler. And internally, like, what is my character's perspective? What is his his or hers opinion? How do I feel about things? How do I feel about the world? How do I feel about my scene partner, their character? So that's a very main driving force about developing that. Well, what is my point of view here? Sometimes it can be very elaborate. Sometimes it can be very simplistic. You know, sometimes it's okay to just have one thing. I'm feeling upset today. That's how yes. my character feels. Or it could be much more elaborate. You know, this person has betrayed me in the past and now I'm being forced to interact with them. But you know, actually, I dislike their character. So yes. it's all about giving you tools to sort of know how to react to things in the world. Because ultimately it's about like, well, how does my character feel? If things are going to happen in the scene, how does that make me feel? How do I respond to that in the context of the scene? So there's this element or you know principle of escalation, which often naturally builds up to a scene to a nice peak. What does it mean to escalate a scene? Why would we escalate a scene and you know, what does that feel like? So escalating a scene is an option you can do in terms of where to take your scene. So that would be sort of trying to continuously raise the stakes of what's happening in the scene. Now the stakes can take different forms, but it's sort of finding ways within the context to sort of keep one-upping, you know, what has been happening and sort of building that tension and raising those stakes to like a crescendo and then hopefully there's like a payoff of some kind. Um, that is one path a scene can take. It doesn't need to be that way. It is a very typical thing that happens, especially in something like improv where like stuff is crazy, stuff's happening, things are building up. I think it gets around maybe the issue of, cool, you know, you're doing a thing in a scene but it's not going anywhere. You know, you're baking a cake together, but now mm. you're just baking a cake and it just goes on and on. You know, people, you know, they get it. You're baking a cake, but they want to see things happen in the scene, you know, character development or something funny or, you know, something that goes past this blocker of just what's happening at the moment. You know, maybe we're just having a bit of a standard conversation. Where does it go? So I think having techniques to to kind of give it nudge when it gets to points where maybe it's not going anywhere? Yeah, so I think as you described, a lot of newer performers and if anyone might be in a context where we're on stage, we're at a bakery as you say you described, busy baking a cake, but we're just baking cake. Now what? So the first port of call I would say is, okay, well, you're two characters on stage. How do you feel about baking this cake? How do you feel about each other baking the cake? And that's your easiest first dynamic to explore is, okay, well, I'm not just doing something. I feel a certain way about it. I'm not just interacting with someone. How do I feel about interacting with someone? So that's an easy avenue to explore, especially if you feel like your wheels are spinning a bit in your scenes. Obviously, you can also, like from a narrative or structural thing, you can, like, you can just make a choice or an offer of what's happening oh no something has gone wrong you can create like you know challenges that need to be overcome you know basic like narrative development and then you need to sort of solve those challenges that could be an avenue to take oh no you know we need to get this cake baked in time for the bake sale or we need to bake a cake that's going to beat our long time rivals at the bake sale yeah. or something of that nature so it's more about 
you know, making choices and thinking about what would be a compelling choice to play then play out in a scene, right? Sometimes it's sort of feel your way through it. Okay, well, I'm just going to decide to do this and then we see how my scene partner reacts to that and sort of play off and escalate that potentially. So yeah, you do want to, because that is a typical thing that happens. People get stuck in their heads or they're baking a cake, they feel safe baking the cake. But then obviously the scene is, still li is quite limited as a result. Like that's fine, unless you find a compelling way to go about physically baking that cake. That could also be an option, right? So it's more, there's no one right way to take it. It is about sort of flexing those different choices and offers you can make to take the scene somewhere. Maybe it becomes a mime scene where we, it's increasingly ridiculous trying to bake this cake in elaborate ways. We're still baking a cake and that would still be compelling at the end of the day. Maybe we're not getting a lot of character development per se, but oftentimes that is also born out of the process. I think that's a tricky aspect for a lot of people with improv is that the process happens in real time. You need to be able to have that capacity to trust yourself and your scene partner to work through it as opposed to trying to like pre-plan all of it, which obviously doesn't work well. Yes, in you've actually context. touched on an interesting part of improv physicality immediately jumped to the idea of vocal and you know even the moving parts and describing things and so on but even just movements and positions those can be useful tools in a scene absolutely yeah because i mean obviously you want to communicate on stage right with the audience and your scene partner we can do that in lots of different ways obviously as you say the first thing that comes to most people's minds is to speak right that's totally fine you're going to end up speaking in a lot of scenes but you can absolutely communicate all sorts of things with just your body language you can communicate so much with your emotions so those are all avenues that we sort of Go, you know, we have different exercises and things to flex those different muscles because you don't want to be like a one trick pony in that you're always trying to do everything vocally on stage. You know, you want to be able to use your body language, use your staging, use your emotions to communicate because that yes. makes a much more well-rounded performer and a much more compelling one at the end of the day. Yes, so yeah, you're ready to be thrown at any situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to touch on developing a character what are the pro tips or you know what are the thoughts when you're like hey you know i'm in a scene it's nice to put on a character it gives you something to work with uh, a pro something mm. to latch onto. how would i act well how would my character act how mm. would my character speech and that can be quite helpful because you know we can all kind of imagine and conceptualize oh a pirate how would a pirate talk what would a pirate do mm. like you know like me on a ship I, oh, it could be tricky so a good character how do you get there as you say, you're, you're often playing a character on stage. You, you want to get to a place where you, you're not playing caricatures of characters, right? It's interesting to play a pirate, but you don't want to play a stereotypical pirate because we've all seen a stereotypical pirate. And that's all fun and there's nothing wrong with that. But like if you've played a pirate multiple times as I have, <laughs> you're going to play another pirate. Well, how else do you go playing a pirate in a new and compelling way. So then you would think about, you know, obviously your physicality is a big thing. Pirate is a peg leg or a hook. You know, those are obvious choices, but you can make another choice. Like how does your pirate stand? What does that say about him? How does your pirate speak? How does that say about him? He might not sound like your stereotypical, you know, Long John Silver's type hey, character. Hey guys, it's Steve the Pirate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so that already says so much about Steve the Pirate. And that's probably a more interesting pirate at the end of the day, because you know, okay, but why does he speak like that? Like what is his world? view so like the physicality plays a big thing um you know how does your character feel you know your typical pirate might be like oh some 
some brash and uh, prideful and you know fearless but like what does an insecure pirate look like what does like a curious pirate look like so making those choices for your character also is interesting a curious pirate or well, what is it doing it's like oh what's going on on that island in the like <laughs> you know that's you could get much more unusual and interesting dynamics to explore by making those choices and then you're know, just like opinions and feelings that your character has you're a pirate but you actually don't like sailing around on the ocean so, but you are here on a ship. Why is that? So that's, Bad life choices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So those are yes. then interesting dynamics to explore. You are you're a pirate, but actually you don't like hurting people, but you keep being forced to board other ships and steal stuff. So like that would tell you how to interact. Because if you're a pirate and you don't like hurting people and you're now attacking another ship, you're going to have a good idea of how you must interact with them, right? If you come across against uh, a scared merchant sailor and you're a pirate who doesn't like hurting people... I'm here to kill you! And then I'll be like, no, but please don't. You're like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm here now. <laughs> right, but it would help, you know, help you make decisions because you know how your character feels or has opinions, right? Yes. And um, also things like status is a very important thing. Like status is a very important thing in character building, you know. Status is a big thing in the real world, obviously. Maybe describe the notion of status. So the notion of status is that different people in society or in different contexts have different like hierarchy or status. You know, some people are low status. They don't have a lot of agency. They don't have a lot of saying what happens to them, etc. They're sort of subservient to people who might be in a higher status over them. So, you know, maybe like a boss and an employee relationship, or you might have another relationship where it's like two partners, they might have very similar status. So that's also a different dynamic. So you interact with someone differently depending on their status, right? Someone's higher status than you, you react the way you interact with them is different to someone who's a similar status to yourself or someone who's a lower status than yourself, right? That's also an interesting way to play with yes. those things. It could be like compared to, you know, society, example of statuses might be a class system. But, you know, interpersonal in modern days would be like a boss, an employee or, you know, mother, child. There's different authoritative and different roles and different ways you'd speak to them. A hundred percent, yeah. And those are very interesting dynamics to play out. And then your, just your character's point of view, like wow, how do they feel about this world they're in? Or, you know, do they have like an internal struggle or a secret want or desire? Sometimes your scene partner, it's communicated to your scene partner what those things are and then they can play off them as a result. And sometimes they're not necessarily and it just helps you make decisions within a scene. Both are equally like valid options. But in a context where your scene partner knows what your opinion is or knows what your status is, you can also have things which is called like a tilt where that might reverse and then that takes the scene in an interesting place. You know, something might happen and then you, our statuses switch, for example, and that would then affect how we interact with Do each other. Do you have other. a good example of this? So it might be that you and I are working at, I don't know, archaeological dig and you're my assistant and then you make a bigger discovery than me, by example, and then all of a sudden amongst our peers, you're the person who's made this great discovery, you're all of a sudden higher status than I am, even though previously you were lower status. So now that status flip in that context would make for an interesting dynamic, right? Yes. I may have been maybe like quite mean to you or something. Uh, you know, you're my assistant, you know, clean those dinosaur bones, <laughs> assistant Steve. And then, Not again. Yeah, and then you make some big discovery and then all of a sudden, well, you know, you're the talk of the science world. And then that colors my now sort of like, oh, you know, like uh, I also helped you make that discovery, didn't I, Steve? And you're like, 
I don't think you really did all that much. <laughs> so those are also like interesting ways you can flip opinions and statuses that create interesting dynamics. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that goes into character work at the end of the day. It's quite a involved but exciting process. A lot of creativity involved. And so, you know, in improv, the challenges that are involved. What are some of those, you know, things like, I don't know, unexpected twists or handling mistakes or just keeping motivated, keeping a good feel and things not falling apart? So obviously, because of the nature of improv, there are a lot of challenges, right? Like, because you're making stuff up, that's very difficult a lot of the time. You know, I think a common thing that happens to, probably happens to everyone at some point, is that you sort of, you get stuck in your head about things, right? You're sort of overthinking things. Um, that can be in the context of a single scene or like you go through a period of, you know, being in a bit of a funk around your performance. Being in your head, you're overthinking things. And that makes it a very difficult space to perform from, right? Because you're sort of, you're insecure about how you're performing. You can't seem to get into your groove. So that's quite a, a very typical thing of improv performers. I think it happens to wider performance space as well. And there's sort of like, there's various things people do to sort of get out of that. I think the biggest takeaway there is sort of like, it's, it's temporary, generally. It's sort of like, you know, you might have someone who's been doing improv for a while and they're having a lot of fun and they sort of, they're learning more. And then eventually they, they might hit a slump and they're kind of like, well, I'm really battling with my scenes and I'm really struggling with my creativity and I'm second guessing myself a lot. And there's a lot of different like exercises and approaches we can take to sort of try to get you out of your head and onto the stage, as, as we like to put it. But I think the big takeaway there is, because it's going to happen to almost everybody, is that it's a, it's a temporary thing. Like, it'll pass eventually. Yes. You know, and, and I think it's also, it's sort of like a, it's a very periodic, even for experienced improvisers like myself, you know, you'll go through tough patches as you go exactly. through, and that's normal, you know. I think people get into a slump and they kind of feel like, okay, well, I don't know what I'm doing, and I, why am I doing this? I'm not having a good time, and what have you. And Sometimes you sort of, the juice just stops flowing, man. Sometimes, <laughs> but the taps get closed. <laughs> the taps are closed. <laughs> Host pipes come off the connection. <laughs> be patient and be kind to yourself. You know, it'll it'll come back. We all go through those slumps, and it's a periodic thing. You know, you go through times where you you're struggling with your performance. It's it's something that will pass. And then uh, there's lots of other things. You know, people have creative differences on stage and I think that's sort of where the, the collaboration and the non-judgmental side comes into it. You want to do a scene about this, you know, it's not necessarily something I refuse to do, but you know, oh, I had a different idea, but it's more a case of I'm okay to be generous about it. The idea is I'm going to help you with your idea. This scene with the expectation that at some point you're going to help me with my idea. No, there's, it's never always just like a one-way street. Obviously it's like a very much like push and pull we're both trying to build it together sometimes there are more dominant ideas in specific scenes and it's to just be able to let go of that and say it's okay for me to just help steve with his scene you know steve has a dominant idea here that's fine i can still have a lot of fun being in a supporting context there or yes. if you're in a case of you know maybe you're never pushing your ideas um, you're never making your own offers or initiations. That's also like not great. You know, you then you should sort of identify and then, you know, there's ways to sort of be more assertive about it. And, you know, you don't always want to just be a one trick pony in that regard. You want to be making offers as well as supporting offers. The nice aspect of even appreciation, you know, acknowledging, hey, that person came up with a really good idea. Yeah, let's run with it. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Or just that person doesn't get involved. This is actually something to go with. Let, let's give them their chance to flesh out their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you'll have tricky performers who struggle with 
sharing in that regard, right? They, they're not as willing, they're always trying to push their own agenda. They, they're not as willing to let the other person's ideas come into play. In the very tricky circumstances, those are larger conversations that can be had. But generally the approach is that you sort of, you want to meet them halfway. You know, if I need to go a little bit more than halfway to meet them, then I'm going to do so. If, you, if everyone is trying to be more generous and kinder on their end, it's going to result in a more accommodating scene at the yes. end of the day. And the hope is that, you know, generally people will realize that they're being too pushy or they what have you. Because eventually people won't want to perform with them. Yeah, you want, you know? to, you want people to be excited when you're there, not like, no, oh, exactly. we have to work around that guy. Yeah. Ooh, you know, everyone be nice, step on eggshells. Do you think in terms of characters, there's problematic aspects or just characters in general that can come up? What makes certain characters tricky to play or even maybe even undoable? Well, tricky to play is different to something that might be considered inappropriate. Look, as people who do improv and as people who do comedy, the idea is that you should be able to portray or, you know, laugh about anything at the end of the day. Like, nothing is technically off limits. However, the practical realities is that some stuff does offend people and it's sort of there are portraying certain aspects like insanity that you just can be very problematic on an improv stage there are certain aspects where if you're going to portray them the idea is to portray them to the top of your intelligence right you try not to portray it in a sort of a lazy stereotypical generalist thing because that's generally insulting and it's lazy right we don't want to be lazy improvisers we want to yes. play to the top of our intelligence we want to put in the effort to portray something um, compelling so it's not that you can't necessarily portray something like insanity but you would want to try to play it i mean that's a tough one to do right yes yes <laughs> but you want to try to treat that with respect and you want to try to play it in a sincere way without making it like a gaggy caricature at the end of the day, like a bad stereotype, right? Yes. Playing bad stereotypes is in nobody's best interest. It's lazy and it's boring to watch at the end of the day as well. You want to sort of feel it out and it very much your more experienced, more comfortable improvisers generally have the capacity and willingness to take on the trickier stuff. Um, because it's challenging and it's still interesting, right? So you don't want anything to be off limits necessarily unless someone has specifically said, I never want to do that. And that's fine. We have to yes. respect their boundaries in that regard. But yeah, so like new people, protect them from being ending up in a situation like that. If I got a suggestion like that at a live show from the audience, no, you must be crazy. And this is a brand new improviser. I probably won't make them do it, right? Because yes. I don't want to put them in the situation where they might be overly uncomfortable about it. Yes. For instance, ones I've sort of picked up and heard about is on this insanity notion, it's more your character has things that restrict the development of the scene in terms of what you can do or what other people do. So if you're someone who just blabs nonsense, it's very hard for someone else to build a constructive conversation or if you do random acts that, you know, people can't build around. And then examples of more disabling your character or limiting physical capabilities, you know. Well, they can't walk, so the scene literally has to be at this location, which could be fine, but also be problematic. So you, you can play into that, but it does have limitations. Or if you can't speak, that's a, it mm. sounded fun in the moment, but that could be a challenging thing. You can make the scene around it for sure, but then you kind of have to make the scene around it. So these are maybe considerations or, you know, I don't know, you're a wall, but you only can phase that way. You know, that's fine. That can be humorous, but then it also could be, you know, someone's trying to get your attention. You can't see through the back of your head, right? 
Yeah, sure. So those like sort of physical things are a consideration. I wouldn't say any of that is necessarily off limits per se. It is challenging, but that would be judgment of what you think the, the individual can handle, right? You know, a big part of improv is getting to know your scene partners. So if I was to perform with like someone I perform with a lot and I know them well, we'd probably do a scene where we two different walls facing away from each other. And because, yes. you know, we'd still find a way, hopefully, to make it compelling, right? And that's part of the challenge. And you do want to try new things, you know, I think it's just maybe being aware of if you're going to do that, the implications of that. But you think, good idea, cool, I'm coming to the wall. There's a lot of implications that, that comes with in terms of the, what the nature of the scene needs to be. And maybe it's just a good thing to but, think about when you're choosing what to be. No, that's true. But again, when you, when you say what the scene needs to be is a very loaded term, Steve. Like, yes. what do you mean the scene? The scene doesn't need to be anything other than what you created to be at the end of the day. So I think that's a, also like a trap people might fall into is in thinking that something needs to happen in a scene. It's not necessarily true, right? If you think in the context, we're playing a wall, we can't see each other, and somebody else might feel, well, you need to see each other in an improv scene. That's not necessarily true, right? So it's also about, I think, being aware of the limitations is 100% true. And those are the sort of things that you would go through in terms of like working through the exercises and the training stuff one might do around that. If there's particularly problematic stuff, again, we might shield people from it. Oh, your character is blind. Mm, maybe we won't go there unless they're actually comfortable trying that. And we trust that we think they're going to play it at the top of their intelligence. We want to be open to seeing something different at the end. Not, not everything needs to be two humanoid characters talking to each other. It can be like two pot plants, you know, <laughs> and that'll be an interesting, like working within those limitations, right? Like in a more yes. abstract scene. So we do stuff like that all the time as well. And sometimes so, people leverage like known tropes, like, you know, Star Wars or, you know, like scenes that, or references, and that can be also fun. Oh yeah, 100%. Like, especially if you're doing stuff that is more trope heavy, like a specific genre, knowing those tropes is absolutely like to your benefit to be able to like work with and or subvert them, right? But then again, if you're not that familiar and we put you say in like a Star Wars scene, but you don't know anything about Star Wars, that could also be funny because you, your idea of what you think it should be <laughs> would also be funny, right? So like you making your mistakes and fumbling through that would still be compelling. As long as you sort of you you're on board and you're putting the effort in like you're willing to try because if you you put in a context where you don't know anything about the tropes but you're unwilling to at least you know venture something in that regard because then the audience and your scene partner is like well good you don't care about this and that's like not fun for anybody so even if you don't know what you're doing as long as you you have buy-in and you're leaning in and you're going to like roll the dice on it that's yes. fine maybe you shouldn't be holding that lightsaber at the the slicing end. <laughs> no, exactly. No. <laughs> and sometimes uh, there's fourth walling, which can be quite fun in a scene. Yes. Like acknowledging what someone did wrong or just what's happening. Like, oh, even we're in an improv scene. Shouldn't we be doing something? And that, you know, that becomes the premise of the scene. Yeah. So that sort of stuff does crop up and it can be very funny. You don't want to like overdo something like that, but it does come up and, you know, especially you're more experienced improvisers might get cheeky about it and they're like, why is my accent keep changing all the time or what have you? But you always want to do it from a space where you're not trying to, you know, it's not like you're judging somebody about it, right? Like if I know you well as a performer and I'm needling you about it, you know, I'm poking you like, hey, why does that accent keep changing, Steve? But you know that it's coming, it's like a good natured thing from my end, then that's fine. But if it's on stage where I've like, I'm judging you and I'm upset with you because your accent keeps changing, that's a different story, right? Like we're here making stuff up. It's okay for me to have a ridiculous accent that I can't hold because I'm trying at any rate. As long as it's sort of a, a good-natured fourth wall breaking, then it's a lot of fun. But you don't want to sort of slip into a case of like 
someone breaking the fourth wall to put down their scene partner. You know, that's not very nice yes. at the end of the day. So that's sort of, that's not in the, the ethos of improper. But yeah, if, uh, if you can do it in a good natured sense and you can be like smart about it, then it could be very funny. Yeah. yeah. But you have to yeah, be cognizant. Yeah. Like if you pull a Seth Rogen of like, yeah, so you're the same character in every movie or every scene. Mm. How does that feel? You're like, mm. <laughs> that's maybe poking at my limitations of you know, broadness. Of, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like you're doing the best you can, presumably. Like that's maybe mean-spirited in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So know how comfortable you are and even spacing, you know, are they comfortable with you touching them or that close and all Very much so, you know. Yeah, because like improv is like crazy. People are all over the show. Knowing your scene partner's boundaries in terms of like, you know, what sort of humor that or topics that sort of like they don't want to engage in and or like physical limitations um, is all very important, right? Because we don't want people to be overly uncomfortable about anything. Yes. Know? And looking towards the future, Improv, and more specifically, I think, improv comedy. Where does it come from? Where is it going? Where does it come from, Steve? <laughs> where, where did he come from? Where did he go? Where did he come from, Cotton Eye Joe? <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, I think you touched a bit on where it's come from uh, earlier on in that. An interesting thing about improv is it's a fairly young performance medium, right? Like, it, improv hasn't been around, at least in terms of our view of it in the modern sense, hasn't been around for very long. I mean, maybe yes. we're talking like the 50s, 60s. Yeah. You know, I could be wrong. Um, so that's in terms of compared to things like traditional theater. And there has been like yes. stuff in the past, which is obviously, I'm sure, improv in some form. But if you think yes. of improv in the modern context, it hasn't been around all that yes. long. How has so, it evolved? I have no authority on the, yes, the evolution of improv there, Steve. <laughs> but I would like to think it's become more sophisticated and more versatile. It was probably, you know, I think in the early days it was often done as sort of like theater sports, theater warm-ups. They would do like short for me, games or exercises, much like we often done at drop-in class. And that was perhaps the extent of it at first. And then, you know, some of the more prominent progenitors of improv were like, well, we can actually do a lot more with this. And I think it's probably grown very substantially obviously since then you know you think of the types of performances people do people do not just like traditional improv as you may have seen here but like you know abstract physical improv performances or very specific genre unusual narrative structured improv it's a very much an evolving art form in that regard the idea is at least here locally is to obviously grow improv um, both from an artistic sense in terms of the type of work we do but also just like the general awareness and buy into improv you know getting more people involved as performers and getting people to classes and that and sort of growing the improv ecosystem as it were and I think again outside of the big improv strongholds I think that's probably the goal you know for a lot of improv abroad as well as to sort of grow improv's profile I think a lot of times improv is may be viewed by some people as sort of like a less than art form, which I obviously don't believe to be the case. And a sort of putting improv in a light, which I'm sure it is very often, that this is a very exciting and interesting performance art. And there's a lot to offer for a lot of people, not just traditional performance and that. Um, so I think the horizon looks good, Steve. Yeah, it's good, it's good. So we can walk into the sunset. I guess so, Steve. <laughs> for you, what would you like to see in the scene more? people exploring more, doing more types of, you know, pushing the boundaries of what they can get away with with improv on stage. And then just the general awareness and appreciation for improv as an art form. You know, more people, we still think, you know, it's a great form of like live. You know, people, especially in the context of today, people want to see people in the flesh, as it were, making stuff up and doing stuff. 
So, you know, people improvising is you know, a very pure form of that at the end of the day. So getting more people excited to try improv, more people coming to shows is like a, an interesting and compelling form of entertainment or what have you. No, no, I think, I think that would be definitely awesome. People, the talent, the unpredictability, it's the good mm. laugh, it's, it's wholesome, but also unpredictable. And it's something unique, you know, you mm. take some friends, they've probably, you know, maybe never seen an improv show. And I always have fun when I go to a show and... You know, some of the shows in the audience, there's this thing of bringing in the audience. Hey, second half of the show, or however you're formatting it, why would you do that? So, like, what you describe is, you know, not just getting suggestions from audience and shows, but we might do, like, a jam, as you describe, after, like, in a latter half of a show. The idea is that, sort of say that, like, well, improv is for anybody at the end of the day. Like, you can have not done a single hour of improv in your life and we're still you know willing to bring you on stage and show that you can have a good time making stuff up with these other you know potentially complete strangers this is something that appeals to you come on on stage you know we'll take anybody (laughs) just about Um, so it's a good like as a test people to see okay well this is doable like it's not like crazy it's not like we're asking you to go up and do like a romeo and juliet guy puts down his beer i got this (laughs) no exactly right So yeah, that's sort of just opening that door of experience for people. Yes. I think for the size of the community, I think we put out a lot of good improv. We have bad shows too, Steve. (laughs) But I think when we put on a good show, it's very high caliber. Quality improv you could have seen anywhere in the world. And then, you know, obviously the the, the local improvisers, especially the... The, the people that have been putting the effort in year in year out, you know, the more the veterans and the, the up and coming people, um, all incredibly talented, you know, and yes. that's such a key ingredient and just like keen and like good people. That's so good for like a, an improv community, or any community, obviously, where you need that that experience and you need that um, that buy-in and people that are passionate about it to sort of bounce ideas off each other and you know hold each other to a higher standard um, so I think despite the, the relatively small size of our community I think there is still a lot of that you know with the local groups troops and that and how hard is it to pick up as an activity I think it's easy Steve I think it's a very low barrier to entry and again because we like we try to position it as accessible and welcoming as possible um, you know we have open classes as you would find in many other parts of the world as well just open drop in improv classes it's for absolutely anybody you know no experience required type of thing you've come once and never again we still feel like the time you spent there you'll get a lot out of it a lot of value out of that time as it were i think generally that people tend to come back um (laughs) getting the people's feet in the door is the biggest challenge but i think once they've gotten a taste of it look it's not for absolutely everybody some people it's not their vibe and that's fine too Um, but i think for people i think especially once it um sort of dispels a lot of the preconceptions they might have about what it actually is. Um, I think they tend to find it quite enjoyable. Yeah, I think there's a lot going for it, right? Approachable, it's social, it helps you develop your social skills, your speaking skills, Mm. it's funny, it's empowering, you know, there's appreciation, there's a almost mentorship aspect, the more senior guys or veterans helping out the little guys. And yeah, it's just good fun, good laughs, and time well spent. Thomas, at this stage in the show, anything else you would like to say? Thanks for having me, Steve. I uh, had a lot of fun discussing improv with you. But uh, if you are happen to be in or passing through Cape Town, we do have uh, dropping classes that we run. We do run uh, you know, workshops and we do run shows. So you can look at the social media for both the Improv Cart, one of the local outfits, and the Long Shots, another local troupe. Then Improvise is also one of the, the local outfits. 
Wherever it is you are in the world, we encourage you to seek out your local drop-in improv class and see what it's about. You might meet some interesting people, have some laughs. I think it's highly likely you won't have a bad time, although I can't guarantee anything to your listeners necessarily, Steve. <laughs> don't tell me what to do! Yeah, don't tell me what to do! I'll go where I want! I had a really good day and I just want to down her! No, exactly. But yeah, I think that's about it, Steve. Yeah, yeah. you did mention improv troops. How does one come together? How do you form an improv troupe? At what time and stage? And how did that come together? So there's no necessary time or stage. What typically happens is you might have people, a certain group of people that have been attending a series of classes or workshops or something together. And then they may decide subsequently, well, we want to keep doing improv and then we're going to band together to make a troupe. Or if it's you just know a few separate people who are interested in improv, you can band together. And depending where you are, there are hopefully guidance available. There's loads of stuff online. There's a lot of great literature on improv that you can seek out to assist you. But approach the people in your local communities that are more experienced. I'm sure they'll be more than willing to give you guidance, you know, to direct you should you want that to be the case, you know, to help you with developing your, your troupe and your formats and your performance together. You know, you don't need a lot of people. You, you can do a two-prov together or three people, or you can have like 12 people, whatever you like. There is, you know, help and guidance available. Seek out the people in your local communities. Seek out the stuff online. There's a lot of great content. It's easier than you might think. Yeah, and like, what have you got to lose? Look like a, a, a palooka on stage? Well, that happens to everybody. <laughs> but they'll probably have a great time either which way. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Steve. Uh, very much appreciated. To our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode. Try out some improv or watch a show. And who knows, maybe it hits off really well with you. I know it did for me. Cheers, folks. Until next time. Thank you.